All right. Good morning, guys. So my experience this morning was waking up and uh, I walked into the kitchen and I was wondering to myself, why aren't my kids up yet? They're normally up. And then I looked at the clock and it said 725 and my phone said 825. And I realized that I had to leave to get here right then. Did anyone else have like a similar experience this morning? Like had no idea. It was totally off the page of daylight savings time. Anyway, I'm thankful that I'm here. I'm thankful that you guys are here and thankful to be opening God's word together this morning. So we're looking at this book of 1 Corinthians. We're getting to a really famous chapter, chapter 13. And there's going to be a really common problem that's going to be exposed in us this morning, and that is a lack of love. So a few years ago, I happened to pick up this book by a guy who's become a historical hero of mine called True Spirituality by a guy named Francis Schaeffer. And basically, what happened to Francis Schaeffer is he was part of a church community that was very right in the sense of having good, solid Bible teaching and good biblical doctrine, lots of gifted people in the church community that he was a part of. But he began to be bothered by something in those around him and in himself. And that was, there was a profound lack of love. And he ended up saying this statement, which has stuck with me ever since I've heard it and something that I've thought a lot about, He said, biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. I think we can recognize this in the church. We can recognize this in ourselves. That it is a total miss of what real Christianity is when we have right head knowledge or we're very gifted but we don't live a life of love. And I think what we're gonna see in this passage this morning is that true Christianity produces the fruit of the Spirit, which includes love. True Christianity is not an outward show. True Christianity is not just about exercising gifts. True Christianity, most essentially, is about new life lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit which profoundly shapes our character as human beings. So the first thing that we're going to see in the text is that gifts are not the fruit of the Spirit. Look again at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So the Corinthian church, just as a little refresher, is a four-year-old church plant. They're in a major metropolitan city. And from the beginning of this letter to Corinth, Paul is praising them because they are a very gifted church. Here's the problem. 
they know they're a very gifted church. So if you were to go to the church at Corinth and you were to be a first-time guest at a service like this, you would be struck that the preacher was an amazing communicator. Like, wow, that person can really communicate God's word. You might even be stirred and touched by the way that they communicate it. You would think that worship leader is the coolest person I've ever seen. They could have their own EP, they could become famous, they could tour if they wanted to. They're so good. And you would start interacting with people in the lobby and you'd be like, wow, these people are so filled with faith. And you would start to hear about the protests that they marched in and the sacrificial lives that they're living and the giving campaign and how much was given to the last one. And you'd be like, wow, these people are giving their lives around. They are lay down your life, super serious Christians. You would almost feel like you were in a group of Navy SEAL Christians. Like, Whoa, this is amazing. And so you'd come back for another Sunday and another Sunday, and then after a while, you'd get involved in a connection group and you'd start hanging out with people. And as impressed as you would have been with the Sunday worship experience, and with the giftedness of the people you were interacting with, you would have been equally disappointed by their lack of love. You would have seen that Christianity in their lives operating on the surface was impressive, but below the surface was deeply troubling and disturbing. And you might walk home from a small group or a dinner with somebody and be disappointed and think, is this what Christianity is really all about? And Paul says that the reason that they would be having this experience and the reason that that description even resonates with some of us in the churches that we grew up with, or maybe even our experience in this church, is because we know that Paul is right here. Gifts without love are nothing. He describes some of the amazing gifts as being like a clanging gong or a banging cymbal. You know, the gift of tongues would be either the ability to communicate across languages without ever having spent the time learning that language or the ability to communicate in the language of angels. An amazing gift. But Paul says if you have that gift and you use it to create kind of second-class Christianity, it's gonna be noisy to the people around you, not beautiful. Now prophetic powers would be the ability to speak into somebody's heart, either with encouragement or exhortation or even a warning to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, be able to read through the word of God or hear a letter from Paul and you'd be able to put all the pieces together and if somebody had questions for you, you'd be able to explain that with some profundity, or having all faith would be 
You wake up and you're a person who trusts God for the future. You don't really worry. You don't struggle with anxiety. But you look into the future with optimism, believing that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. Or if you're a person who would deliver up your body to be burned for a cause. Maybe that's the one that's being championed the most in our society. Like, are you going to take the banner for social justice? Are you going to stand up for what's right? Are you willing to give up your life for what's most important? And Paul says, if you have all of those things, but you do those things in such a way that you try to make yourself look great instead of serving other people in love, it's not sort of good, sort of bad. It's nothing. So gifts minus love equals nothing. Now, this kind of reminded me of some conversations that I've had with different guys over the years who are unmarried. And they're talking to me about their desire to be married, their desire to find a spouse. And something that I find, found myself saying to guys over the years is don't put too much emphasis on external beauty. Because here's what happens if you marry a girl who is very externally beautiful, but is very internally ugly. You're going to find that out real quick after you marry her. And you're going to be like, I made the biggest mistake of my life. Because external beauty minus internal character equals nothing. That's not a good prospective marriage partner. So don't get fooled by the external gifts. Don't get fooled by the beauty. Look deeper than that. And I think in a similar way, I would say, let's not be fooled by the giftedness of the people around us. Let's not be fooled by the giftedness of a church or a leader. Let's look beyond the surface and look to the heart. Jesus himself said, you will know a person by their fruit. Okay, so here's a little bit of the test for each of us. I think the test is different for different people. So I think that the temptation, if you are a gifted person who is being recognized for your gifts and being known for your gifts, is to mistake your giftedness for internal transformation. So here's what's going to happen. People in the church are going to pat you on the back, and they're going to tell you how wonderful your gifts are. And they might stop asking you questions about the reality that you have with Jesus and the transformation that's happening in your own life. And so if you're a gifted person who's being recognized for your gifts, it's important that you remain a humble and repentant person, a person who is examining yourself, looking at yourself, and instead of 
just passing the gifts test to make sure that you're passing the love test. Now, I think there's an equal temptation for people that are sitting on the sidelines and are not using their gifts within the church. And that is to think that you are far more loving than you actually are. Because when you're sitting on the sidelines, it's easy to be critical of the people that are playing the game. And one of the primary ways that we are to love people is through the exercise of our gifts. So for example, if you have the gift of hospitality, but you're never having anyone over to your house, you might think, I'm a really loving person. But then, if you start having people over to your house, you might recognize some impatience, some anger, and some frustration that comes up in your own life and in your own heart. Okay, so here's what Paul does for us graciously. He says, gifts are not the fruit of the Spirit, so don't be deceived in exercising gifts into thinking that that means that you're spiritually mature or even a Christian. He says, here's the test. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Okay, look with me at verses four through seven. Here's the test. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Okay, we have a little bit of a hurdle to get over before we even jump into the text, and that is, we all know this scripture. We've all heard this scripture read at a wedding. Okay. What we haven't heard at a wedding is this scripture read in context. Why is everybody reading a passage about the correction of spiritual gifts at weddings? It's a good question. Right? I think there's some application to it. I'm not Totally poo-pooing that. If you read it at your wedding, don't feel like I'm rebuking you right now. But I'm just saying, we don't have the full context. So as a correction to being arrogant over spiritual gifts, Paul says, hey, I want to check you on your arrogance. And so I just want to do something really simple. I want to take each phrase and just explain further what a life of love looks like. So here's what Paul says. First thing, love is patient. So that means it tolerates suffering, delays, and problems without becoming annoyed. Love is kind. That means it has a generous and friendly attitude toward others. Love does not envy. That is, it is not resentful because of someone else's looks, money, position, or gifts. Okay, love does not boast. 
talk with self-satisfaction about one's own accomplishments. Love is not arrogant. Doesn't have an exaggerated sense of its own importance. Love is not rude. It doesn't have a startling abruptness to it. It's not offensively impolite or ill-mannered. Love does not insist on its own way. It doesn't demand forcibly, not accepting refusal. Love is not irritable, having or showing a tendency to be easily angry or annoyed. Love is not resentful. It doesn't feel or express lingering disgust over being treated unfairly. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It doesn't feel or show joy in dishonest or devious acts of others. Love does rejoice with the truth. It feels joy in what is right, noble, true, and lovely. Love bears all things. That means it carries the weight of other people's sadness, joy, and even sin. Love believes all things. It generously puts confidence in other people's trustworthiness. Love hopes all things. It expects and desires good things to happen to people even that have hurt you. Love endures all things, suffers what is painful or difficult with grace and patience. Okay, here's how I would summarize what love is. Love is internal affection for others which manifests itself in sacrificial service which has to be empowered by Jesus. Which of us, in reading that list and in explaining it just a little bit, not fully, you could take a sermon on each of those characteristics of love, but just explaining it a little bit, which of us feels like, yep, got to figure it out. I'm loving. I'm living this out perfectly. Okay, so there's a couple different reactions that we can have. One is pride. I can be a loving person. Like you read the list. Some of us are box checkers. Some of us are hard workers. Some of us are performers. We're like, okay, the love test. Okay, I'm going to write out these, whatever, 20 things. I'm going to put a box next to each one of them. I'm going to develop a plan, a love plan, and I'm going to tick boxes. I wasn't resentful there. All right. I endured that, kind of. All right, check that. Okay, but we try to do it with pride, like self-effort. I am going to be a loving person. Or you respond to the list with despair. There is no way I could ever be a loving person. What's the use in even trying? Now, our response to this list is not to be pride or despair, but dependence. Here's what I mean by that. We are like the Corinthian church 
Maybe we're not arrogant of our gifts, but we're arrogant in many different ways. And so the purpose of this passage is to show us the bankruptcy of our own heart. It is like Jesus telling us, you have no money in your bank account. Which, in one sense, is devastating. But let's just say Jesus has millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he says, here's the deal. You have no money in your bank account. All you have to do is ask me, and whenever you ask me, I'll make a deposit. Just enough for the moment. Just enough for the day. Just ask me. I'll wire you some money. Okay, in one sense, devastating. I have no money. In another sense, great news. Because Jesus got all the money. Devastating. You got no love. Great news. Jesus, by his spirit, lives in you. You have access to him moment by moment. And he is not accessed by us showing off for him. He is accessed by our humility. The key ingredient in being a loving person is recognizing that you're not and asking Jesus to help you. I found a beautiful example of this reality from one of my historical heroes named Corey Ten Boom. So Corey Ten Boom survived a Nazi concentration camp and lived to tell about her experience. Most of it's recorded in a book called The Hiding Place, which I would highly recommend that you read. But she's describing, and what I'm about to read, it's a little bit long, she's describing her experience of forgiving a Nazi guard at the concentration camp where she was who later became a Christian and who was, at least in part, responsible for her sister's death in the camp. She's interacting with this person. I want you to hear her words. So it starts with this Nazi guard's words. He says to her, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been Many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what their physical scars. 
Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And having thus learned to forgive in the hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say it. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior, but only draw them fresh from God each day. You see what she's pointing out? Something so profound and so beautiful. The only way that we can be loving people is moment by moment dependent on G- dependence on Jesus to live through us. It is as simple as Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. Not despair. I can never be a loving person. Not pride. I can do this in my own effort. But Jesus, help me. I want to be a loving person. Why would we want to do this? I don't know about you, but I read this list and I'm like, this seems crazy. In this broken world, to live a life of love where we endure all things and believe all things and hope all things, people are just going to walk all over us, aren't they? Why would we do that? Paul says something really profound next. It's that love is ultimate reality. He says love never ends. Look with me at verses 8 through 13 to close. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So how is it that love never ends? Seems almost impossible for us to believe that in such a hate-filled and broken world. It seems to us like the more natural thing to say is, 
Brokenness never ends. Pain never ends. Hurt never ends. How is it that love never ends? Paul goes on to explain that prophecy will pass away, tongues will cease, and knowledge will pass away. What is he saying? This world is like a hospital, and the gifts are temporary solutions to sicknesses of the soul. Prophecy speaks into our need for encouragement and warning, tempted to go back into lives of sin. Tongues is meant to connect us to people who speak different languages, because after all, all the different languages of the world are the result of the fall. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? They're meant to connect us to other people. And knowledge is looking at the scripture and the world through the correct lens. But our knowledge is so imperfect and partial, we're bound by our own historical situation and our own biases. So Paul says, love doesn't end, the gifts will end. They're temporary. They'll end when what happens? They'll end when, instead of seeing in a mirror dimly, we see Jesus face to face. He describes even our best moments with Jesus, even the moments where his love is flowing through us to others, is like seeing in a mirror. Now understand that in that time, a mirror was not like the beautiful mirror that you looked into this morning and could see a clear reflection of yourself. A mirror then was like looking into an old spoon. This not very clear at all. So he's saying, our experience on this side of heaven, of even experiencing Jesus' love, is impartial and incomplete. What is going to make everything right is when ultimate reality floods this reality. Here's ultimate reality. God so loved the world. Everything will be made new. All the brokenness of the world will come undone. And we will be with Jesus forever. This is what's being described for us in the story of the prodigal son. You remember the son leaves his father's house and he goes and spends all of his dad's money and he goes, does all sorts of immoral things. And he's sitting there thinking, well, maybe I could go back to my dad's house and maybe I could be a hired servant. That's like seeing in a mirror dimly, isn't it? It's like maybe God is loving enough that he would accept me and let me be his slave. And that son, like us, all the way to the end of the road, is sort of walking slowly toward home, and he's still a long way off. And he's looking up at his dad's house, and he can barely make out his dad. And his dad goes like this. 
and he can barely make out his son, and he can see that it's his son. He can see that it's you. And we get this unbelievable picture in this story that Jesus is telling of the father lifting up his dress thing, whatever you call it, which men in that culture did not run. And he lifts it up and he takes off running toward his son and embraces him. And he doesn't say, oh yeah, you can come back, you can work for me, let's see if you can pay off your debt. Instead, he makes him this giant meal and he welcomes all of his friends and he says, let's eat and enjoy because my son was lost, but now he's found. What happened? Love covered all of his offense, all of his sin. Here is the beautiful news of the gospel. God is love. God is patient and kind. God does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Heaven is a world of love a love that never ends because God is a God of love. And he will not just put up with us for eternity, he will extravagantly love us for eternity. So ultimate reality is not the brokenness that you see in this world. Ultimate reality is the love of God. God is inviting us to be like him in loving the people around us. Imagine the way that that would change us and imagine the way that would change the world around us. Now, we're not gonna do this perfectly, so there's gonna be a lot of apologies, a lot of fits and starts along the way, but would you join me now in just praying, just the simple Corey Tinbroom prayer, Jesus, Jesus, you are love, and we are not. There's so much impatience and unkindness and unwillingness to bear with other people that has been exposed in us once again this morning. And so we're coming to you asking for help. Would you help us to love our spouses and our family members and our co-workers and our extended family and even people who hate us and mistreat us in the practical things of life so that people would see your love reflected in us, that we would be changed and that the world around us would be changed as a result. Pray this all in Jesus' name.